All right, let's open the word. First John chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 7 through 12. And as you're opening your Bible or turning on your Bible app, I'd like to kind of give you a report. Um, praise the Lord for this. A uh, couple of Wednesday nights ago, we had our annual meeting where we set up our annual budget as a church. Um, it's uh, a way for us to be good stewards of the gifts that God gives this ministry through you. So unlike the federal government, we don't operate out of a deficit, just, you, just so you know that. Um, this, is, this is absolutely some awesome, awesome news, and I pray that it encourages your heart. Uh, this came from our stewardship team, and it was presented to the church that, um, give you a little bit of background, over the last few years, we've seen the Lord progressively um, bring people to Rocky Mount Baptist Church, people that you have reached out to, people that you've brought here, and moreover, people that you've taken the gospel to outside of these four walls. And guess what? A lot of people have been saved these past few years. Amen? All right, so here's, here's the thing, right? Like, if, if, you're, if you've been changed by Christ, you remember that time when he just, he just opened your eyes, opened your heart, and you're like, what am I doing? Like, what am I, I'm living for this? Like, no, and you're like, I, I'm changed, I'm made new. You know, when that type of experience, that reality hits, man, everything changes, doesn't it? And you see, when God changed your heart and when he changed my heart, it's something that you can't just keep to yourself. You spread it. So what we've seen is the Lord changed lives, and then from those changed lives, you guys have reached out to people that you know and love, and God has saved them. We've had a lot of people come and, and be able to be involved in mission trips, in jail ministry, in working with students and with the children, helping out keeping this place from falling apart because any building with age is the same as a house. It's just a money pit. Can I get an amen? amen? Right? We've got people helping out in all of these areas. And the most important thing is that people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If we have $5 million in the bank but nobody gets saved, that's called a lose. It, it really doesn't matter. And moreover, we would be counted we would be held accountable for what we have to use it for God's glory. So here's kind of the way it happens. God changes a person's life. Then as they grow to be more like Jesus, once their heart has been changed, they allow Jesus to work through them. And then other people who know them see that change and they're able to explain that change. And people are like, wow, if God can change you, then maybe he can change me. So then you see the growth of the church, more people getting saved because God saved more people. You see it begins to ripple and affect. And what happens, one aspect of discipleship and becoming a follower of Christ, it's not an issue of how much money you give. Like you can't give your way into heaven. You can't, like it's impossible. That's a debt that we can't pay. But one of the aspects is that when God changes our heart, this is so interesting, the things that we value begin to change, don't they? 
It's like the things that we used to value above all else, now we see those things as less in value in terms of what Christ says is of ultimate value. So here's what we've seen over the last few years. We've seen a lot of people come to Christ, and then one aspect of that discipleship is regular biblical giving to the things that Jesus says are valuable. Local church, according to Jesus, is valuable. Missions to other places is valuable. So here's the thing. Here's what we had. Um, We, through God's grace, the offerings have been really, really awesome. Praise God. But there's a story about a rich fool in the book of Luke who whenever God blessed him, he said, man, I don't have room in this barn for all my stuff. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to give some away to the Lord. I'm going to try to help somebody. He didn't say that. He said, let me tear this sucker down and build a brand new one. That's what he said. And God says, you're a fool. So we didn't want to be a fool. All right, your stewardship team. We want to be good stewards of what God has given us. So here's what we voted on. The church, unanimous vote, approve this. Take $100,000 of what we have and establish what's called a vision fund. A vision fund has to do with the vision of Rocky Mount Baptist Church, which is to make disciples of all nations. If y'all continue to actually, and if y'all want to just be, be carnal and be pagans and don't tell anybody about Jesus and be held accountable for that, if you just want to put your Christian life on hold, we're good. Like, we won't have to go to two services. We can just stay like this. If y'all want to do that, that's what we can do. It's really, really quiet. But if you allow the Lord to continue to work in your life, what we're going to have at a certain point is space issues. We can go to multiple services. That's fine. But we, we would think more down the road to say, well, would it be possible for us to have to relocate? Or would it be possible for us to do another church campus? Or would it be possible for us to, to help out an orphanage or to, or to go on more mission trips? So what we wanted to do is let you guys know when you get that budget report at the end of the month that we're just not getting the money to sit on it. We tracking that when you give, you give to a vision. And praise God, some more things awesome that came out of that, that meeting. And I have a, uh, our budget that was adopted here. We have had with this next year, this is what we're giving. So basically what you give here, this is just one aspect of our total budget plan. We had a 50.6 increase in what we give to cooperative ministry, a.k.a. missions. Everything from local outreach to helping international mission board missionaries take the gospel all around the world. And I don't know about you guys, but this is not a time for us to compare ourselves to other churches. All right? But let me just tell you guys, in our area, most churches operate very, very difficult, except for a few in regards to finances. The finances are just not there. So the fact that we have this discussion, what do we do with the money that God is bringing in should be, that should fire you up. Because our area, we're doing better economically in certain areas, but I tell you what, we are by no means uh, an exploding area with all sorts of new businesses and new factories and new jobs. So the fact that God has chosen to bring this level uh, of funding here is an awesome, awesome thing. Something else that you guys are funding this next year, we have an issue here at the church. We want to help people. Amen? All right, like we really, really, really want to help people. But often when people come to us, they need us to pay for things, whether it's a light bill, whatever it may be. And we've talked to enough people to realize that in most situations, the light bill's not the problem. We track in. The light bill, that's, that's the, the right now issue, 
And everybody at a certain point may hit hard times, but what we want to do is help people build uh, character, be able to handle money, be able to have counseling. And there's a place right over in Manita, right across the 122 bridge when you cross the lake called the Agape Center. It will absolutely blow your mind if you go there to take a tour. They help people out with clothes, with food. When it comes to Christmas time, they've got, they've got toys there that the parents can actually get. So it's not like us showing up, guys at that guy's house at Christmas, like, well, you can't buy your kid a Christmas present, but we can, and making him feel like a loser. This is a way for them to be able to support that man, to support the mom in their role as parents, and they also provide mentoring. Because a lot of the people who would come to a church needing financial assistance, they've got more, uh, they've got more challenges and needs and issues, so we wanna help people, so what we're gonna do is do what we can here, but we're gonna fund them as well. And we'll talk more about that, but it's an absolutely amazing, amazing thing. And we're going to hopefully get our students involved. If you'd like to mentor there or get involved in the Agape Center, it is awesome. It's an amazing ministry. But that's through the change that Christ has done in your heart that has trickled down into your pocketbook. And we want to let you know that we're here not to just amass large amounts of cash for no reason, but we have a vision that when you give to it, that's what it goes to. And then we call Daniel, worship team leader, awesome. It's gonna be a great, great season for that. And we also, as a church, voted to begin searching for an associate pastor of student and families. That's gonna be a full-time position. Um, the Lord has led us to that place. It would be a great way. Uh, we've got the high school. It's like a mile away or so with over 24, 2,500 students. We've already got probably that many kids here. At least that's what it looks like when they all usher out of here for children's church. And so here's the thing. When God brings us people, you guys are the most valuable thing um, that I as a pastor could ever come across. The fact that you're here this morning is showing that well, maybe your, your wife or husband may have guilted you, but you're here anyway, all right? It's showing that you value the Lord. It's showing that you value family. So what we wanna do is try to put money, put emphasis, put energy into building up this next generation for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if statistics hold true, even in Rocky Mount, only about 15% of the millennial, millennial generation actually says, I'm an evangelical, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian, 15%. So God's led us to the point that we're gonna be able to pursue someone who will be able to help with the students, sixth grade through 12th grade, be able to help strategically with the children's ministry that's already in place to reach children and their parents for the glory of Jesus Christ. So I don't know about you guys, I'm a little weird, but that excites me. Can we give the Lord praise this morning? That's some, that's, praise the Lord. All right. And what would motivate us to do that ties right into the message this morning, the love of Jesus Christ. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, and we'll read verse 7 through verse 12, then we'll kind of give some cultural, uh, I guess we could say foundations so that we don't misunderstand this text, and then we'll walk right through it uh, word by word. The Bible says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be 
big word that will break down the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The love of God, man, that is an incredibly huge subject. And in these next few weeks, we're going through a series on the glory of God. Last week, we looked at the holiness of God, about how God is separate from sin, about how God is entirely other, that God is not the universe and the universe is not God. I'm not God. And regardless of what your dog thinks, you're not God. Like, none of us are God. Like, we are dependent upon him for everything. We looked at how the glory of God is seen in the holiness of God. And if you've read your Bible, you'll come across a lot of references to the glory of God. And the Bible tells us that whatever we do in, in word or in deed, let us do all to the, help me out, to the glory of God. That means that the point and purpose of my life and your life with everything that we do, everything from flipping a hamburger on a, on a charcoal grill to correcting a child to speaking encouraging words to our spouse to going out and working hard on a job so that when we come home we're exhausted, all of that is to the glory of God. And this is in your notes. When we talk about the word glory, the, the Bible ties it together with the idea of heaviness or weight or worthiness, it has to do with importance. What it means is that when we talk about the glory of God, it's God getting what he's due. It's kind of like if you've ever, if you've ever won a trophy uh, in a sports, you know, a sports league of some sort, at the end, if you win the championship, you get the trophy. And it's like we talked about last week, you know, today we give kids trophies for just showing up. But back in the day, back in the day, kids, you got trophies if you won. So if you won, you got that trophy. And in a certain sense, the trophy is giving glory to your ability, your hard work, your stick to itness, and all of that. But really, were we the ones to ultimately receive glory for doing anything? I mean, did, did we create ourselves? Okay, you, 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 you've developed a skilled trade, that's awesome, you got a college degree, that's great. But when you go back and go back and back and back, far, 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 everything that we could ever achieve comes from God. Everything. That's why it's so cool when you see some NFL or NBA um, athletes and they'll say, I just want to give praise to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They give glory to God because it's God who gave them that ability to develop in the first place, right? So whenever we have, uh, whenever we have achievements in life, we should point to the glory of God. And we see God for all of who he is. One of those aspects is the love of God. And that's what we're going to try to pull out from uh, this morning and, and really try to unpack. So here's a, here's a question. What is love? We hear about it all the time, but I want to give you several cultural misunderstandings of what love actually is, because a lot of times we say the word love, we impose that on the Bible, what the Bible doesn't actually mean. So um, one example of love in our culture would be like a, an abstraction. To where people say, well, love is basically like a non-personal force. It's kind of like, kind of like a, a, a synthesis between the Star Wars force and Casper the Friendly Ghost. Like it's just this thing out there called love. It's not attached to anybody, not attached to anything. It's just this thing called love. 
lot of times we sing about that in songs. Songs talk about love, but nobody actually defines it. So for some people, there's this idea that love is just this thing. And with Plato, he had the theory of the forms. And I'm really, you guys are really excited that I just mentioned that, right? Ready to take all sorts of notes. But here's the thing. Back in the ancient world, thank you, Josh. By the way, Josh Marburger, Nicole Marburger, um, brother and sister-in-law here from Maui, Hawaii, uh, visiting this weekend. Can we make them welcome? Welcome, yeah. Welcome. Welcome. Um, if you felt any energy in this place, it's coming from Josh. He's like, he's like a self, yeah, he's crazy. He's, he's literally nuts. Um, but he loves Jesus, so it's awesome. So I think that several people just missed a beat in their heart when you scream, but that's good, that's good, helping us out. Um, I have no idea where I was, but we'll get back to it. Plato, not the stuff that you play with when you're a kid and make things, but, but the, the, the Greek philosopher, people thought, they're like, okay, well, we know, we know intrinsically there are things that are good, things that are bad. Well, where does goodness come from? That's a good question, right? Like, what is goodness? And Plato, since he didn't have the knowledge of the scriptures of a full picture of who God was, he came up with this theory, and it was called the theory of the forms. He would say something like, well, the reason why we recognize a good horse is because somewhere in the stratosphere, somewhere in some realm, there's this perfect horse, and that is the, the foundation. That is the example. That is the ultimate. So you had good that was separate from God. For some people today, they still think that goodness or love or loyalty is just something, it's an abstraction. Another common cultural misunderstanding about love would be that it's an enemy of justice. Just think of Santa Claus. People say, now listen, if you're loving, you don't enforce justice. If you're loving, it's all fun and games. Love is just kind of opening up those floodgates of happiness and it's just rainbows of skittles and i'm skipping around and and it's just kind of like love is like this all you can eat buffet of whatever the heck you want to do with your life that's a cultural misunderstanding of love they'll say well love has no safeguards it has no standards like and we hear this all the time with the debate over sexuality as followers of christ that if we say no here's god's plan for sexuality here's god's plan for the family one of the objections that we often hear is that you're being unloving right because there's a common cultural misunderstanding that says that love has no standards but if we dig into that a little deeper, we'll find that that's not actually love, that's actually chaos and anarchy. For some people, love is just a mere feeling. It's an emotional high, it's like the song, you've lost that loving feeling. Whoa. Please, please don't, don't clap, that was awful, that was awful. But I appreciate the platitude, right? Songs that it's all about we're falling in love and I'm falling out of love. It's so funny. Jen said um, before we were married, she listened to Taylor Swift and she's like, so much of Taylor Swift's music doesn't apply to me anymore because I have them. Like I'm, I'm married and I'm in love and like all the dramatic up and down, like it doesn't apply. So. <laughs> Hallelujah. You've got this idea in our culture that love is just, it's a feeling, it's a sentimentalized feeling. Here's what D.A. Carson said about love. He said, the love of God in our culture has been sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. 
to where we will say, well, I fell in love with him or her. But we didn't really fall in love in the biblical sense. What we fell in love with was what we were presented with, where she always was presenting her best foot forward. I mean, and he was always on his best behavior. He never, you know, he was not rude. He was not callous. He, he was just, right? Like that's the way that dating relationships start. And then at a certain point, real life kicks in. Can I get a witness? Right? And then you see angles of the other person that you didn't realize were there. And our culture, because so many people have this idea that love is just something that hits you and that it just drives you, what happens is that we don't love the other person, we love what is presented to us by the other person. And, and it's kind of like this. It's how they make us feel with their good looks, with their good sense of humor, and with their intelligence. It's like a guy saying, man, she, I, I love her. Like, I love her, she's so beautiful. He probably doesn't love her, he loves how her beauty makes him feel in a crowded place, right? And, and a girl who's looking for fulfillment outside of God, looking for ful fulfillment in a man, looking for love will say, well, I love how he makes me feel. He meets my needs. Hey, listen, you can get a godly guy and he'll be great for you, but there's no way that any human man can ever meet the love that a woman needs. It can't happen. It's a false idol. And it's kind of like what we've seen in many relationships. When we start out, we think it's love, but then it's kind of like that new gift that we got at Christmas, and we just thought when we were 11 or 12 years old, like, this will make my life complete. Like a red bow and arrow. I remember when I was 12 years old, I was like, I can shoot this. Like, this is far better than my, uh, my little cub compound bow, like 10. This has got a 20, 20 pounds draw. Like I can want, you know, and it was just, but as you grow older, the newness of the new loses its appeal, right? And any, many times in our culture, people have the idea that love is a sentimentalized, emotional, elated high, and when that wears off, people say, I no longer love him or her. For some people, love is basically a conditional contract. It's kind of like a members-only type of love. It's kind of like, well, I'll love you if you love me in return, or I'll love you if you stay slim and trim. I'll love you if you bring home a good paycheck. Some of you have experienced this as children, where your parents basically say, I will show you love as long as you bring home good grades. Parents, I will support you, I will affirm you as long as you win in peewee football. And in Jesus' day, this is a very interesting uh, historical segue, there were two schools of thoughts in, in relation to um, divorce. There was the Shammai school of thought, which says that a man could only divorce his wife in the case of adultery. And then the Hillel school of thought said that a man could, could divorce his wife for any reason, including burning dinner. True, true. That, act, that, that was actually the case. It was a conditional type of love. And you may want to write this scripture down. Matthew chapter 5, verse 46. Jesus says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Jesus is saying that people like people who are like them. Right? I mean, people like people, we like people who are like us. And he says, but guys, he's talking to Jews. He says, even the, even the tax cheats like other tax cheats. They're like, you got a new way, new loophole, right? Like, and then he gives another example. He, it's like about the pagans. He's saying, like, they all greet each other. Like terrorists. When they get together. People who are involved in organized crime. I mean, 
Birds of a feather flock together. But Jesus is giving an example to say if you only love people who love you, then there's no difference between you and the most ranked pagan. And what helps also is to understand those cultural concepts of love are not what are mentioned here. And in Jesus' world, there are actually several words for love, and we covered this a couple months ago, but we'll go over it again. Um, there would be, in the Greek language, eros, which would be sexual love uh, between a man and woman. And there was also the word phileo, which was like a warm affection between friends, kind of just like those people that you really uh, say, man, we ought to have them over again. Like we really connected well, like we're friends, we're buddies, we're amigos. We're pals. There's also the word storge, which is a family type of love. It's a love that's within a family. But then you get to the word that's used in the Greek New Testament most often for the, for the love of God, and it is the word agape. It's like, it, that's the word that's used here. And it's like this love, this self-sacrificial love that moves people to action. It's kind of like everything changes when you begin to look at the superiority of God's love. So let's look back there at verse number seven. You see, God's love is superior to every other cultural understanding of love because God's love gives us an ultimate reason to actually love. Notice what it says. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. So what the Bible's saying is that love comes from God. Y'all check that, y'all track that, right? Notice again, it says, for love is from God. So here's the question. Can a person, man or woman, actually be a completely, fully loving person if they don't know God? Not according to the text. Notice it goes further. And it says, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. John MacArthur here says that what the apostle is saying is that God's love is the highest expression of his person. You see, when the Bible says that love is from God, it means that love is not something that you and I create. It's not something that it's a human achievement, but it is a gift from God. That means that we can't fully expect to find love in another human being. We can't expect to find complete acceptance in another person because love comes from God. And in, in the New Testament world, in that first century world, when people would read something like this, I mean, you know it had to blow their mind because in the first century church, you would literally have slaves. They had no standing in the world. Their master could take their life at any time. Imagine that. Imagine that. If you're living in Gaul or in Britain or, or somewhere like in, in the, the, the German territories and the, the legions of Rome came and they killed most of the men but took you and, and a few people back and you were sold and you didn't know the language and it was a horrible experience, but yet people heard the gospel, even slaves, to the point that at a Christian meeting, this was mind-blowing, mind-blowing for the first century world, that you would have a person of political power, a person with religious power sitting there with a slave taking the same Lord's Supper. Mind blown. And the Apostle John, it says, because love is from God. The reason why people don't love is because they don't know God. And notice that it says, for whoever has been born of God, that's in the perfect tense, it means completed. That means that once God makes you and I born again, it doesn't go away. You are it says, and knows God. So here's the thing. We have to be born of God, but then actually know God. And not only that, go to verse 8. God's love is so superior because being born again is a prerequisite. 
being genuinely saved is a prerequisite for being able to truly love. Notice what verse eight says. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, this is so simple but so profound, because God is love. John Stott said, God is love in his innermost being. See, it's an amazing, amazing thing because our world, we have storge, we have family love, we have phileo, we have friends who really enjoy one another's company. There's eros, I mean, we're a culture that's driven by erotic advertisement. But many people in American culture today have never experienced God's love, agape. It is a love, as we'll break down in just a few moments, it is a love that goes far beyond anything that people could naturally imagine. And if you go just a few verses uh, further, you can come to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20, and the Bible says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And notice as it goes further there in verse 10, it's talking about God's love is so superior because it takes the initiative. Notice verse 10. In this is love. So here he's, the apostle John setting the stage. Not that we have loved God. Time out. That means all of our devotion, all of our collective devotion to God, that's not love. Can't be the complete picture. Why? Because it has humans as its source. Why? Because it says that love is from God, just a verse previous. But notice in verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now this is a very big word, but it's an important word. Propitiation, it means the satisfaction for sin. It means, we, could, we can understand it this way, that when we see injustice in the world, whether it's children getting abused or whether it's world terrorism, we see those things and we're like, man, there's something that's not right there. Even as jacked up as we are, even as twisted as our moral vision can sometimes be, we still know that there needs to be satisfaction for sin. Amen? That's called justice. We all recognize that. What propitiation is, is it means that God has to have a sacrifice for sin. Sin must be paid for, but here's the problem. Was there any person without sin? None. There is none righteous, no, not one, in Romans chapter three. So here's the problem. God being loved desires to redeem the human race, but there can't be salvation in the human race because we're all born sinners by will and by choice. So what God did is he sent Jesus into the world born of a virgin. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a sinless death. And through Jesus' satisfaction of God's wrath, Jesus' payment for our sin, the propitiation for our sin, that was the greatest picture of what love could ever be. Because think back with phileo, with friendship. I mean, we love our friends. Even you can go back to the 1990s Budweiser commercials when they're just saying, I love you, man. I love you. And they just kept saying that. I mean, we've, we've experienced human friendship. We've experienced family love to a certain degree. But this type of love goes beyond, and here's exactly why. Because we love people who love us. What's it say in John chapter 15, verse 13, right? About a, a man dying for his friends. No, there's no greater love than a man who lays down his life for his 
Help me out. Friend, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that we were enemies of God. Wait, if we're enemies of God, then how does that play into the scenario? It means that God's love was so great and is so great that he was willing to give his son to die for his enemies. Let that rock our minds for a minute. And sometimes we say, well, Jeff, it seems like it's this, it's the book, he, John's the apostle of love. This is a book to where it repeatedly references love. Why does he say in this, verse 10, in this is love, and then he ties it together with the bloody, terrible, gruesome death of Jesus? Well, it's because love, God's love, is sacrificial love. You see, when God demonstrated his love, he gave his only Son. And receiving God's love comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Notice verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, so he's saying, man, if this is true, if God actually loves me, we also ought to love one another. Isn't that, isn't that kind of like an underspoken magnitude of a statement? He's like, if me, if as a human, Jeff Robinson has offended an almighty God with his sin, but yet that almighty God chose to forgive Jeff Robinson through Jesus, then who am I to hold bitterness with a human who sinned against me? Because how can a human sin against me be greater than my sin against a just and holy God? You see, when we look at the cross of Jesus. We see that love is not an abstraction, but it's a person. We see that, that it's not just God saying, we'll do whatever you want, and I'm Santa Claus, but love from God is a declaration against evil, and praise God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he won. And the debt of sin has been paid for you and me if we'll run to Jesus Christ. You see, love is a person, it's Jesus. Love is not just an emotional high, and you know, we've got different musical styles here, different tastes, but when you hear that song about Jesus and it just gets you, it gets you excited and you're just so pumped, or when you hear a sermon or a message and you have that emotional high, it's even more than that. Because when Jesus died, it was a conscious, passionate, continual act of self-sacrifice that culminated in the cross. You see, Love for friends couldn't get you there. Family love couldn't get you there. Emotional high couldn't get you to the cross, but agape, the love, the self-sacrifice of God brought Jesus to the cross. Romans chapter five, verses seven and eight says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God, this is so cool, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you realize for every single one of you here this morning that has not been born of God, that has not been born again, that the love of God is available to you? It does apply. I've had conversations with people before that have had, that have struggled with can God forgive me? Let me ask this question. Is your sin greater than God? 
Could you possibly do something to where God would kind of scratch his head and say, I don't know what, angels, like I've been able to save the Paul when he was Saul. I've been able to save people who have committed murder, who have, who have been, I mean, all like a plague on the earth. But listen, this person, I don't know if we can handle that. Can you imagine God saying that? That's, that's insane. But what happens is Satan will come to us and he'll say, do you remember what you did? You, how can God use a person like you? Do you realize the addictions that you have? How can God, well, it will probably work with those other people at church because they don't have the issues that you do. Not true. The love of God has been shown through Jesus Christ and it applies to every single person that will come to Jesus Christ and repent and throw themselves on his mercy. That does apply to you. Do you realize that? It applies to me. Amazingly, the love of God is on us. And here's the difference. This is um, what Tim Keller puts it like. He says, religion says I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. But the gospel says mm, I am accepted by God through Christ, therefore I obey. God is not looking for you and I to turn over a new leaf. He's looking for us to turn to Jesus Christ. Carl F.H. Henry said the early church didn't say, look at what the world is coming to, but they said, look at what is coming to the world. Man, notice how this concludes there in verse number 11. He's saying, the apostle John is saying, brothers and sisters, if all of that is true, let us love one another. We ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Yesterday, we went into uh, Roanoke, and we went up to the star, and uh, we were there looking at the whole valley. Have you ever been up to the Roanoke Star? It's a, it's a pretty awesome place, and they've got kind of that, that photo, that long photo that's been imprinted onto that board of the valley. Like, you can literally see a picture of the valley, and then you can look up and see the valley, and, and Josh is like a quote machine, and he was talking about seeing things as uh, he really is, like he actually is a quote machine. And I'm just waiting for him to scream one more time here. But, um, but he, he was talking about how, you know, sometimes we see things in small focus and then we look up and I thought, you know what, how that ties into verse 12 to where the text says no one has ever seen God. What it's saying is no one's ever seen a full picture of who God is. You couldn't do that and live. But here's the thing. Many people are able to see what God is like by what he's done in your life and my life. Kind of like they're trying to say, man, what is, what is the purpose of life? Who is God? You know, how do I deal with my marriage problems? All this stress and children and jobs. When, when you look at the printout of the valley and you can look up and actually see the valley for all that it is, it doesn't compare. And what we need to pray for is that God would give people a picture of the greatness of his love. And that people here, maybe, maybe some of you guys this morning are saying, you know what, I, I, I've, I've always been trying to do enough to be accepted by God, to improve my life to the point where I can get saved. That's not how it works. When you call the cleaner over to your house, you don't clean before, even though I know some of you do. <laughs> right? Ask somebody to come to a job. No, we don't have dust here, but come clean it anyway. The fact that we can come to God Mistakes, addictions, hurts, scars, and we can come 
to God and he is willing to forgive us and show us his love is something that is absolutely mind-blowing. And it may be for some of us who have been born of God and we know God to come back to that first base and realize that the love of God and the forgiveness of God is not something that we realize and we receive when we get saved. But man, that is the fuel for the whole entire Christian life. And for some of us, we need to look up and see the beauty of God and all that he has done for us through Jesus. Do you know Jesus today? Do you know if you, if you died today that you would go into the presence of God? Where would you go? Would, would, you, would you go to hell? Straight up. Like, where, where would you go? If somebody asked you where would you go, what would you say? If it has to do with, well, I've done this or I'm a good, that's a good indication that you're not born again because born again, it means us realizing that we are doomed outside of Jesus regardless of how well we take care of our family, regardless if we pay taxes on time, that we are doomed and every single one of us, including myself, is damned. And I'm not cussing when I say that. Every single one on our way to hell. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus comes into the picture and says, I love you. I love you enough to go to the cross for you and for me, knowing what we have done, knowing what we will do, and that changes everything. 